This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The reason why IUU is a bigger maritime security threat is its global scope and impact. This is truly a worldwide problem. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing has replaced piracy as the top global maritime security threat. That's according to Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Carl Schultz. The Coast Guard recently released a new strategy for combating illegal fishing, and I spoke with Pacific Area Commander Vice Admiral Linda Fagan about this issue, Arctic security, and how the Coast Guard is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Admiral Fagan, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Let's start with your area of responsibility as the Pacific Area Commander. You cover an enormous an enormous area. Can you talk about it and what you and the teams under your leadership do? Yep. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about uh, what we do out here in Pacific area. You know, the Coast Guard divides the world in two. I have a counterpart in Portsmouth, Virginia, who uh, oversees the Atlantic area. You know, put succinctly, my AOR goes from from the Rocky Mountains to Madagascar and uh, includes both poles. Six of the seven continents are in the AOR, 71 countries, 74 million square miles of ocean. And we oversee that with a workforce of about 13,000 active duty reservist and civilian employees. And we have a number of subcommands and subunits from small boat stations to air stations, major cutters, deployable specialized forces, and then obviously staff elements that help us uh, oversee and uh, manage that. And each and every day in the AOR, we engage in all 11 of the Coast Guard's statutory missions. So, for example, you know, in a typical day, we have major cutters deployed in the Eastern Pacific uh, who are uh, interdicting drug runners on the water. We have boats and aircraft underway to help protect our critical infrastructure in the nation's ports. We break ice, support scientific research in the high latitudes, Conduct search and rescue in the Bering. In fact, search and rescue is a is a mission that we conduct each and every day in the ports and harbors and, and waterways across the AOR. And then we engage in uh, fisheries boardings in the in the Western Pacific. Uh, your Coast Guard is deployed both here in the homeland in the ports and harbors and across the Pacific to engage in partnerships and provide services to the American public. That is an enormous responsibility. The Coast Guard recently released a new strategy to combat illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Uh, I think it's better known by the acronym IUU. Why is that a bigger maritime security threat than piracy? I think folks are familiar with the threat from piracy, but maybe not from IUU fishing. Can you talk a little bit about that? The short answer is the reason why IUU is a bigger maritime security threat is its global scope and impact. This is truly a worldwide problem. So let's just sort of unpack what this term IUU means. So, you know, I is for illegal, in other words, in contravention laws and regulations that are in place to provide for uh, governance and sort of normalized behavior. The the second U is unreported, i.e. fish that is caught and then not reported or underreported or misreported. 
And then the final U, unregulated, right? Executed by vessels who may not have nationality in management areas where their flag state may not be a party or in areas where management measures and just don't, don't exist. So, you know, just kind of to put a scope on why fish are so, so significant, literally to the, to the world, you know, half of the world's population, so about 3.3 billion people, rely on fish for 20% of their protein. 93% of the world's fishing stocks are classified as either exploited, overexploited, or significantly exploited. You know, this is a classic uh, kind of tragedy of the commons issue, and it makes the ability to enforce and ensure that the resource is protected for all of us just uh, that much more challenging. So now a couple more statistics, right? IUU fishing accounts for about 20 to 30% of the annual catch. It results in losses of $23.5 billion per year. And these are losses that are incurred by small island nations who really need access to their natural resources for, for the well-being of their own populations. China is the, the world's uh, top producer in global captured fisheries with 12.7 million metric tons. Not all of that is caught illegally. And just to put it in perspective, the U.S. is six with 4.7 million metric tons from a you know global fisheries standpoint. It just, again, it's a problem that obviously we're focused on in the Pacific, but it truly is occurring across the globe, making it a particularly uh, challenging issue for those of us that are looking to uh, you know protect those fishery stocks. And can you talk a bit more about this new strategy for fighting the problem and the Coast Guard's specific role in that fight? Happy to do that. And obviously there was a uh, you know, big rollout of the IEU fishing strategy just within the past a couple of weeks with the, with the Commandant and the Southcom Commander and NOAA Administrator really just highlighting the interagency aspect and all of government aspect to fishing and uh, combating IEU fishing. And, you know, the Coast Guard's been the, the lead U.S. agency for at-sea enforcement of living marine resources laws for, for over 150 years. And so this is not a new mission area for us. It's an area of increased emphasis and focus. And so the strategy outlines three lines of efforts. The first is to promote targeted, effective, intelligence-driven enforcement operations. Again, this is using intelligence and technology, data analysis, information sharing, to help identify and target and then interdict those illicit actors uh, in the maritime domain. You know, we're using lessons learned uh, from our counter-narcotics efforts to generate the kind of analysis that helps us get at the network that is uh, resulting in IUU fishing. The second uh, line of effort is to counter predatory and irresponsible state behavior. And so it's really to shine a light on the activities of those who are very intentionally and blatantly violating international law and the rules-based order that we all enjoy and, you know, in looking to expose and hold accountable those, those predatory actors. And then the third line of effort is expand the uh, multilateral fisheries enforcement cooperations, right? As I said, this is a, it's a whole of government and an international and an interagency a challenge. And so working with our international partners to help them develop and maintain their own counter IUU fishing capacity to assist with governance and enforcement systems, all of that becomes part of this multifaceted effort to target and encounter the IUU fishing threat. What kinds of security issues are caused as a result of illegal fishing? So, you know, illegal fishing, it undermines a nation's sovereignty. It threatens its economic security. And then 
results in a weakening of the global rules-based order, again, that we all, we all enjoy. As we said, we've talked about fish as an essential protein for almost 40% of the global population. And IUU fishing undermines a nation's ability to achieve its own domestic food security. It disrupts and destabilizes fragile economies of small coastal states and increases tension between nations, you know, as they compete for fishing stocks. You know, IUU fishing, it also, it erodes U.S. competitiveness in in global markets. American fishers are subject to laws and standards that promote resource sustainability. And, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard works with our own U.S. flag fishing fleet to ensure that. Fish that's caught illegally, you know, when it when it enters the market, it then disadvantages our own domestic fisheries and fishermen. And you know, IUU fishing often happens in concert with other illegal or illicit activities, such as human trafficking, forced labor, and the trafficking of other illegal substances. Right? It's a it's a network that is exploited for illicit means. And, you know, finally, it just, it undermines our collective maritime governance, the, you know, international order, international law, maritime law is something that we all rely on, you know, to protect our own sovereignty as the United States, but, you know, across the, the globe, any activity that erodes that maritime governance is, uh, is something that needs to be addressed and countered. Is this mostly a problem in the Pacific or is it an issue in the Atlantic? You know, it, as I said, it is a worldwide problem from the Western Pacific to the Eastern Pacific, Gulf Coast of Africa. As we have, as nations have divided up the world and, and oceans with borders and different management areas, you know, the fish don't see or know where those are. And many of our fish stocks are highly migratory. And so while the fishing may be occurring in a specific uh, region, truly the, the impacts of that are global as the fish stocks, you know, migrate through their life cycle. What are other countries doing to address this issue? Are our allies and partners working with us on global maritime security issues like this? Yeah, ab- absolutely, right. As a partnership is a key part of how we need to address this global maritime security issue. And you know, there's a number of international forums and conventions that provide frameworks for the kind of collaboration and partnership that's so essential to this particular topic. And so examples are some of the regional fisheries management organizations. They're the most common coalition and many, but not all, include high seas boarding authorities and help address some of the transshipment challenges. So anywhere we can help with, again, you know, the, a regional approach of, of many partners and allies, it just really is key to countering this particular issue. Other examples, you know, the Pacific Quadrilateral Defense Coordination Group, which includes Australia, France, New Zealand, and the United States. North Pacific Guard, this is the operational aspect to the North Pacific Coast Guard Forum where we conduct boardings at sea. And in the, the countries that belong to the North Pacific Guard are Canada, Japan, South Korea, Russia, China, and obviously the, the United States. And we had a Coast Guard cutter earlier this summer patrolling in the Pacific, doing boardings under the North Pacific Guard to, uh, to again, just enforce these international agreements and uh, ensure that under high seas boarding authorities. And, you know, we talked about how it's a, a worldwide issue. So, you know, another example is the uh, African Maritime Law Enforcement Partnership, where training and exercises and combined law enforcement exercises are conducted 
with our Africa partner nations. And so really, you know, partnership and, and international and regional approaches to this challenge are really, really key and critical as we continue to move forward and, uh, and counter the threat of IUU fishing. Well, let's talk about another area of the globe. Let's talk about the Arctic. And what's the latest on the icebreaker CGC Healy that had a fire back in August during a research mission? Yeah, so that was really just unfortunate that that fire occurred. Thankfully, no one was hurt. You know, the biggest impact to that fire was we had to cancel the the second part of that patrol where they were going to be providing scientific support in the high latitudes. We're working now with the with moving the parts to the ship and identifying a shipyard so that we can get Healy into a shipyard and repaired. And I'm, I'm confident that here in a fairly short time period, we'll have Healy up on a dry dock and, and that work will begin and she will absolutely be fully operational and, and ready to resume missions in the Arctic, you know, early next summer as the weather window opens up for those kinds of operations. And it was a tough uh, break for the crew, that fire but we are looking forward to getting her repaired and then back into that high latitude uh, mission that she does in the uh, Arctic, which is uh, so critical for us, right? You know, the, the Coast Guards, the, um, so we're the lead maritime surface force in the, in the high latitudes. And, you know, the way you generate presence is with a ship and uh, presence equates to influence. The United States is an Arctic nation. And we play a key key role in that. So getting getting Healy uh, back and engaged is a top priority for us. And what's the impact on Coast Guard operations in the Arctic since there's now just one icebreaker that's active? The scientific portion of Healy's Arctic deployment this summer was was the uh, primary impact, but we do not expect any impact to our Arctic operations next year. And you know, we uh, we have an Arctic strategy. The Coast Guard's published an Arctic strategy. That prioritization and focus is unchanged. And, uh, you know, we, we continue to work to uphold American sovereignty, advance national security interests, and promote economic prosperity in the Arctic. And so, well, you know, we had a direct impact with, uh, with Healy. That was not the only a Coast Guard asset that we were operating up in the high latitudes. We have uh, shore-based forces that we call deployable specialized forces, and we put them into the Arctic this summer, conducting a support uh, for our Operation Arctic Shield, which is a, an operation we conduct every summer. We have fixed-wing and rotary-wing presence in the region, a lot of it based in Kodiak, but then we forward project particularly the helicopters into places like Kotzebue and uh, Cold Bay as the fishing fleet uh, moves around. And, you know, we have other risks that we need to ensure we're, we're postured to address. And then, you know, just a short uh, month or two ago, we had the National Security Cutter uh, Monroe, which is one of our newest assets. They were operating up along the maritime boundary line and up in the Bering. And then Alex Haley uh, was conducted uh, patrols in the bearing and, uh, you know, remains postured against, um, you know, again, just kind of creating presence and ensuring that we're adequately postured to provide the, the level of service and uh, risk mitigation that the American public expects from us. And the presence in the Arctic is really important. I want to ask you about the major security concerns that the U.S. faces there. Is it Russia and its activity, since Russia is so very active in the Arctic and is itself an Arctic nation? Before I answer that question, I want to make a point about the polar security cutter and the new assets that we're going to bring online. So I'll answer that and then I'll come back. So, you know, we've been talking about Healy and the Coast Guard is, uh, you know, on a timeline and on budget for 
new polar security cutters. So in April of 2019, the Navy and the Coast Guard jointly awarded a contact to a VT uh, Halter Marine for detailed design and construction of a new polar security cutter. We as a nation have not built a major polar security cutter icebreaker since uh, the mid-70s, which is when the Polar Sea and Polar Star were built. And the 2021 President's budget request includes funding for construction of a second polar security cutter. The lead polar security cutter is scheduled to begin construction next year in 2021 and then scheduled for delivery in uh, 2024. And uh, we are really excited for the opportunity as a Coast Guard to operate uh, those polar security cutters for the nation as we provide critical presence in the high latitudes for the nation. So your question, you know, I would characterize Russia is both a partner with regard to shared concerns uh, in the maritime realm. We, uh, from a search and rescue standpoint, uh, the, the Coast Guard and uh, Russian Border Guard have uh, actually fairly regular interactions to ensure that we are preventing the, the loss of life along that shared maritime boundary. But, you know, Russia is, you know, also a source of concern in the Arctic. They currently operate over 50 polar class icebreakers. There's three new heavy nuclear icebreakers that the, they currently have under discussion, and there's some notional plans for uh, six heavy nuclear icebreakers. So obviously just considerable more investment in icebreaking ship capacity for them to, uh, to operate in the high latitudes. You know, and I should mention that both Russia and China have declared the Arctic a strategic priority and are, are each making investments in capabilities to sort of enforce that position. You know, Russia it just continues to sort of operate and make their presence known. And in Russia, you know, they, they are a substantial Arctic nation as well. They've got a long, long border on the Arctic. And so some of the, the activity and construction you see on the Russian side are, you know, just part of their uh, you know, development, you know, as a nation and, and investment in capacity there. You know, so we maintain as sort of a Coast Guard to Coast Guard, very collaborative relationship with Russia, as I said, on our shared maritime issues, particularly around search and rescues. And, you know, and then we continue to collaborate through some of the, the uh, international forums that, uh, you know, allow us to continue to have discussions and, uh, you know, ensure that uh, where we, we can find alignment on maritime governance that we do. You know, as you go through the Arctic and, you know, major, we've talked about China and Russia. And what I, what I want to highlight is, you know, what is changing in the Arctic? And so there is a, uh, a use pattern that is definitely changing in the Arctic. And so as the Arctic becomes more ice-free for longer time periods during the year, we see just a, a lot of increased human activity. And so whether it's uh, cruise ships that are looking to transit through the Northwest Passage or access to fishing and fishery stocks and just, you know, all of the types of activities that people conduct on the water, there's a, you know, a risk profile there that we as a nation and as a Coast Guard need to be postured against. And again, this is the why the polar security cutter investment becomes just so, so critical to us as a nation. Let's talk about, besides ships, what are the other tools that are important to protecting U.S. interests in the Arctic? So, you know, it's always maybe a statement of the obvious, right? But, you know, the, the ship and the people on the ship don't need different enablers and capabilities to ensure their success. 
And the biggest area that I can, you know, we can anticipate that we need is going to be, you know, reliable, robust communications and capabilities in the Arctic. It's, you know, the traditional terrestrial communications infrastructure that we enjoy in the, you know, lower 48 and, you know, around the world uh, don't exist uh, in the Arctic. And so as a nation, as we look at, you know, what are the investments that will need to be made from a whole government approach to ensure that we're we're meeting and filling those gaps. And so, you know, communications, infrastructure and investment is really a key area of conversation and need so that as those ships come online and begin to operate in the high latitudes that they're able to communicate with all of the tools that they've they've got at their disposal. You know, satellite communications will be part of that. Obviously, the way the, you know, the satellite systems operate now, they're, you know, they're not optimized for a, for high latitude coverage. And it's just part of the, the ongoing conversation with regard to, you know, how do we fully leverage that polar security cutters uh, capability and capacity? And that includes some other enablers and investment. What about the Antarctic? Do we patrol there in the same way that we do in the Arctic? And I believe if I'm remembering your bio correctly, you served in Antarctica as well. So what was that like? So I, I have served in Antarctica. My first tour in the Coast Guard in the mid-80s when I came out of the Coast Guard Academy was on the Polar Star. And Polar Star is the nation's only commissioned heavy heavy icebreaker. And so she sailed each fall to McMurdo to Antarctica to uh, support Operation Deep Freeze. And, you know, so the U.S. has uh, two primary bases in Antarctica. There's the base at McMurdo, which is provides deep water port access to the continent of Antarctica and is used to provide, you know, bring supplies in, fuel and supplies to support uh, McMurdo, but more importantly than to support the station at the South Pole. And so Polar Star goes down there. They break a channel through the ice that then allows resupply uh, ships, both, you know, cargo and fuel to uh, to get onto the continent in support of Operation uh, Deep Freeze. Antarctica is, uh, it's just an incredible place. It was really a rare privilege to be able to go, you know, go down there on the Polar Star and see what we're doing there at the U.S. base and uh, see the emphasis on uh, on science and, you know, in a really untouched, kind of untamed part of the world. It was interesting to me, you know, obviously we go down there in the in the summer uh, and the two things that struck me were in the summer, it was not as cold as I thought it was going to be. And uh, it's incredibly dry. It's a desert despite, you know, all the snow and ice that's here year round. It is just pretty much a, a cold desert. And the Antarctic Treaty helps to uh, ensure that you know, we're going to protect and preserve the continent in a way that uh, we haven't seen in others you know, last year we did. Uh, we had an opportunity with Polar Star to to conduct uh, U.S. inspections of a couple of the foreign research stations. You know, again under the Antarctic Treaty and uh, its protocols, and we were able to inspect three different stations. One was Italian, South Korean, and uh, one was Chinese. We did this in uh, February, and just you know, again, kind of international agreements and collaborations and verifications are you know, just as important in Antarctica as they are around the, the globe. 
and uh, you know preserving that wealth of natural resources and uh, you know ensuring the continent isn't negatively impacted is uh, you know an important and shared interest for all the countries that uh, operate uh, stations down there. I want to circle back uh, to the Coast Guard covering so much territory and how that means you have to be very, very versatile. How do you stay ready and what impact is the COVID-19 pandemic having on your ability to stay ready? The short answer is we we are ready. We are generating operational readiness and uh, mission assurance and that, that has been unchanged by covid What has changed is how we're generating that operational readiness and mission assurance. It's obviously become more challenging in the COVID uh, environment to do that. We've implemented uh, testing protocols and what we call ROM or restriction of maneuver as ways pre-deployment to uh, create that readiness, particularly on some of our, you know, the large major cutters as we project them far, you know, far afield. Uh, you know, over into the Pacific or, you know, even up into the bearing. And so Healy would you know, be a great example, right? We, we tested the crew. They were in a fairly restricted, you know, ROM or restriction of maneuver. Two weeks later, we tested them again, and then we sailed them with, with high confidence as all those tests came back negative that there was no COVID on board. And we worked through similar protocols with the scientists that uh, we were going to embark on Healy. You know, and another example, and, and so we've been aggressively using uh, PPE as well, masks, and you know all of the guidelines that the CDC has put out. And you know, I'd highlight so earlier in the summer, the Coast Guard Cutter Active was down in the Eastern Pacific doing uh, counter narcotics boardings, and so we knew the crew was COVID free. But you know, each time you uh, encounter a vessel at sea and and do a boarding, there's obviously risk associated with that. You know, just that that interaction then with the other vessel's crew. And in at least one case, we did interdict cocaine and seven uh, ended up with seven detainees from the one, uh, one boarding. When we disembarked the detainees in San Diego, five of the seven of them had tested positive for COVID. None of the active crew did. And again, it's just really a testament to the protocols and PPE and the, and the learning that we've all done as far as how to create operational uh, readiness in the COVID environment. You know, one of the things where I've seen, though, just impact to our crews, right? The training system continues to, to operate, but again, it's just been uh, more challenging getting the, the throughput into the training system. Partnerships remain, you know, absolutely critical. We don't do this alone. And so we've been leveraging technology. I've been uh, reaching out to many of my key international partners, whether, you know, India, Malaysia, Japan, Korea, and uh, doing Zoom calls and Microsoft team uh, meetings to just, you know, continue to move topics forward of shared uh, shared interest, you know, in an environment where we can't come together in person. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you about your career. You mentioned graduating from the Coast Guard Academy in 1985. How have things changed for women who choose the Coast Guard as a career path? So I, uh, you know, I did not feel like a trendsetter when I started the academy, but I, I rewind now and realize I was only in the sixth class of uh, women to, to graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. And, it, you know, all of us uh, should remember that, you know, it was 1976 when all of the service academies were integrated at the same time. It's a point of pride in the Coast Guard. The Commandant of the Coast Guard at the time, Owen Seiler, uh, made that decision before the other service chiefs and, you know, the decision to bring bring women in into the academy. And so, you know, here we are in the 40th anniversary of women graduating from the academy. 
And, you know, I just reflect when I graduated, there were 16 women of the about 200 of us that graduated. This year, we graduated almost 200 people and, uh, you know, about 40% of them were women. My daughter is serving in the Coast Guard. She uh, she graduated from the academy in 2016. And I've often reflected as I listen to her and her experiences just about uh, how much positive change we've made as a service, how we've, uh, you know, we continue to challenge ourselves to update our personnel policy, uh, make sure that we've got the right culture in place and that we are an organization that that allows, you know, individuals with all of their diversity, you know, all of the different backgrounds who can come and serve and, you know, find meaningful and fulfilling work and that they can uh, serve to their fullest potential. And we're much better now than we were you know, 30 years ago when I graduated. And we continue to challenge ourselves to make sure that we are offering all of that uh, goodness to uh, to anyone that might want to uh, want to serve. Admiral Fagan, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.